Welcome to Living Wisely, Living Well, Timeless Wisdom to Enrich Every Day with Asha Nayaswamy, one of the spiritual directors of Ananda Palo Alto and a founding member of Ananda Worldwide. If you enjoy this content and are inspired by the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda and his disciple Swami Kriyananda, find Asha on YouTube, Facebook, all podcast directories, and her website, ashajoy.org. Living Wisely, Living Well, April 14th. Be happy in yourself. If, in a plea for happiness, you hold out a begging bowl to life, the bowl will remain always empty. Ooh, that's a very sad one, isn't it? We don't really like to think about that. We don't like to think about ourselves or others holding out begging bowls to life for happiness. But I think all of us understand what that vibration is. Either we understand it because we ourselves have been the one leaning in and hoping that somebody will take care of us, or we've been in a position where somebody was leaning in toward us. And if you've been the one who's being, to whom the begging bowl is being extended, it's a very, very, very difficult position to be in. Um, it's, it's very complicated. Because if it is not a spontaneous response on your part to um, give to a person what they're asking from you, and it's not a sincere response on your part, but it's a sincere desire on their part, it's extremely poignant and extremely difficult. But we also can tell the difference between a begging bowl and a dignified opening of the heart and a hope for friendship. I remember from, I was going to say a hundred years ago, but since I talk about reincarnation, I might actually be talking about a hundred years ago, so I need to make it clear. It's not just a figure of speech. But I remember when I was, uh, my one year of college, among the many reasons why it was only one year of college, it was actually about two weeks of serious involvement in college that stretched out into the finishing until the spring, from the fall to the spring, just because I think I didn't know what I would have done if I dropped out immediately. But I didn't like college. It did not provide me anything that I needed. I had no career ambitions whatsoever. So therefore, there was nothing in, nothing I needed college for. If I'd wanted to be a doctor or a scientist or something where you really need to study and learn this body of information, then there would be a reason for it. I was looking for the meaning of life. And I learned really fast that my professors didn't know. It was just the only way I can put it. They simply didn't know. I actually had, uh, nowadays it would have been an actionable offense, but in those days things were a little bit looser, 1965. Um, my married English professor um, thought he could uh, start an affair with me. He was married and he had three children. This certainly did not increase my respect for professors. I was not, as people are these days, offended by it. I was just astonished that the man could be such an idiot. That was basically how I thought about it. That I, he was married with three children. You know, why, why, why would I get involved with him? It just seemed crazy to me. But what it actually said to me was, how can you presume to be my teacher? You're such a fool. Just as simple as that. So it, it did not help my career in school. I'd already been through a couple of other incidences, uh, going into a class that was called uh, 
it was called consciousness, actually, because this was 1965 when LSD was being experimented with at Harvard University and there was a lot of interest. I thought we were actually going to explore the nature of consciousness, but what we actually did explore was a whole lot of people's opinions about the nature of consciousness. And success in the course was to be able to um, stack up as many opinions as possible. I was actually there to understand the nature of consciousness and I realized I was singular in my interest. And the professor, quite frankly, had no idea about the nature of consciousness. He was just able to collect opinions about the nature of consciousness. And uh, it wasn't what I was looking for. I was at no less a university than Stanford. So these people had a lot to give, but they didn't have what I wanted. It was really as simple as that. Interestingly, now that I think about it, a few years later, uh, 1969, so it would have been four years later, I met Swami Kriyananda. As it happened, I met him at Stanford. <laughs> it was by then coincidence. I had dropped, long since dropped out, but I was living in the area. I seemed to have a karmic relationship. There's actually a, a form of astrology which tells you where you should live geographically. If I look at mine in retrospect, I should obviously live here because I've lived here almost all of my adult life. 16 years at Ananda Village and all the rest of it as a, as a freestanding adult has been right in this area, um, with very few exceptions, a few months here and a few months there. Um, now, let's see. Oh, yes, but I, I did meet Swami at Stanford University just by chance. He'd been invited to speak there, and I went to hear him, and so it was a coincidence and nothing more. But what I just said about, the, I believe that the professors at Stanford had a great deal to offer. It just wasn't what I wanted. When Swami Kriyananda walked into the room, at it was actually a, a tent set up outside the Beta Chi fraternity house on the Stanford campus. That tent was usually used for the fraternity's parties, but somebody thought it would be a fun idea to invite a Swami. This was 1969, this all was all happening. Swami Kriyananda walked into the room. He had not spoken, I had not heard the sound of his voice, I had never seen him before, I'd only heard his name. My friend told me that, quote, he's a real teacher and I think you'll like him. That's how she put it. He walked into the room and, and this intuition I didn't know I had said, he has what I want. And that was it. It was like, he has what I want. And you see how very personal spiritual path is. It's just, there he was. Many people found what they wanted at Stanford University. I didn't. I found it on the grounds of Stanford, but I found it in the personification of who I wanted to be. You see, when my English professor, who was no doubt brilliant in his own right, was crazy enough to think that an affair with one of his students would somehow enhance his experience of life, he, he was not anybody I wanted to be. I just, I was, I knew at that point that this man was misguided and this was going to be crazy. But when I saw Kriyananda, this is a man I wanted to be. Never varied from that instantaneous rec recognition to the minute I'm sitting here, I have never varied from that perspective. I have, he's been my pole star, I've modeled my life trying as much as possible to replicate in my own life. I can't be him, of course, that would be ridiculous, but to be the definition of attunement and commitment and service and bliss and honor and integrity, all the different things you would say, that's who I've striven to be. 
and insofar as I have succeeded, which is somewhat, um, I owe it all to his example. So having said all of that, where I was going when I was starting with Stanford, is the other thing that was really incredibly distressing to me was the state of mind of almost all the other students. I was in the dormitory. That was the last of the time of of segregated gender dormitories and a very formal, even I think the next year, the formality of the women's living situation was dissolved and it all became much more different than it was then. So I was I was living with these women in a slightly formal situation with lots of rules and things like that. And I decided over the course of many months that as a group, I think they were the most unhappy group of people I'd ever met. And in many ways, all of the freshmen that I was associated with were because, and see, these are all things I put words on later. No, I put the words on them at the time. We needed something really meaningful to do. Education was so so book-oriented. We would just sit there and talk about things, but we were we were dying to participate, to, to have meaning, to to really do something. And it was all just intellectual learning. Since then, I've learned about education for life, masters and then Swami Kriyananda's idea of how real education takes place, experiential learning, a real search for truth, having some kind of meaning at the heart of the collection of information and <clears throat> what is appropriate for adults. You know, we, we were adults in many ways, but we were still living like children. I mean, that was our own choice, especially at a university like that. Most of us were fully supported. You know, we didn't have to work. We didn't have to really make it happen for ourselves. It was still being done for us by others. It all felt very out of balance, but I'm going to finally come to the last part of it. And by no means was this universally true. I guess I have to be fair. Let me say this clearly. My destiny is to be a counselor. It's always been so. That's just who I've always been. I've actually had correspondence with some from a high school friend, a high school acquaintance whom I don't remember, but he remembered me. And most of what he remembers <laughs> is how I counseled him and other of the high school students. It's just, I had my palm read at one point and someone looked at my hand and said, you know, there's no possibility that you'll do anything but be a counselor to people. So I have to say then, therefore, probably the women I mostly met were the women who wanted to be counseled. And I'm going to come finally now to where we are because they were holding the begging bowl of life out. They were holding a begging bowl. They were looking for happiness. And at that particular time, it being the era it was, it was just before everything broke in a completely different way for everyone on the planet, but also strongly for women, was, you know, I need somebody to love me. You know, I need, I need to find somebody to love me. Now, I know that still is a very powerful force. I myself, I, by, by no means am I immune to that thought. I don't want... I don't want to sit here for one second and present myself as immune to that need. It's so deep in all of us. You know, we all want to be loved. And I, it goes so far, Swamiji says in, in one of his books, it was almost the last book he wrote, or perhaps the last, Love Perfected, Life Divine. And it's actually a novel. It's, he rewrote a novel that was published a hundred years ago. And the novel is about soulmates. And he elevated the theme to a much higher level. But the theme was, and this is on the 
I'm going to look back here and just see if I have it. Yes, I have it right here. And, and <clears throat> Swami says, Why would God plant within us such a deep longing to be loved, not only impersonally by Him, but also personally by a single other, if He did not also intend to fulfill that desire? That was actually something He said to me, and that's a, a quotation from the foreword said, before God realization can be attained, Swami said, every desire must be fulfilled. And certainly the fulfillment of so compelling a desire as the longing for perfect love must be part of God's plan for us. It was so beautiful when he said that. I wrote it down and later wrote it into the forward of this book when he asked me to. Now, soulmates is a whole other extremely interesting conversation it is not what most people think of. People think of it as a passionate sexual relationship. We can have soul union with many people, but soul mate on the level that Swami talks about in this particular book is on a, a much higher plane. The point being, everyone wants to be loved. And most of our lives is a compelling drive to be loved, whatever we call it, however we call it. Ultimately, what we're seeking, and what will really fulfill us is when we have union with God. But very interestingly, and that's what Swami writes in this book, and this is also what Master said, there is also a human element to it, a perfect love between two people. But by its very nature, it must transcend physical compulsion. You see, that's where the confusion sets in. And as often happens in these brief um, conversations that I have about this book, we touch on subjects that are much too big, so I'm just going to have to skip it. But what Swamiji says here quite simply is, the desire is understandable, but what we have to gradually learn over the course of many incarnations and through much heartbreak is how to, how to actually fulfill that desire. And this is where Swami says, you have to be happy in yourself. That doesn't mean that you're not, you don't still welcome the relationships with the world. That doesn't mean that you're, you're not fully open to the fulfillment of this deep longing of the soul. But, but one stands in the, in the dignity of one's own being and the awareness that I am responsible for my own consciousness. And then we bring into our life uh, a, a dynamic capacity to love. And what that brings to us is someone who also has a dynamic capacity to love. We attract what we are. Oftentimes when people come to me about, well, because of this marking in my hand, you know, how do I attract the partner that I want? I've suggested to people, make a list of everything that you think is going to happen to you when you have this perfect love relationship then look at that list and see how many of those things you can begin to manifest in your life now. And begin to live as many of those fulfillments. Create for yourself those fulfillments. Because then that creates the kind of magnetism that will bring to you what you're really looking for. Instead, if you just sit there and think about your emptiness, that's your signal to the world. I'm empty, I'm empty, I'm empty. How magnetic is that? When someone comes to you desperate to be filled and, 
you know, it's, it's, there's a bottomless pit quality to it, which is why I said at the beginning, it's a terrible conundrum when someone comes to you like that. What can I do? But if when, when one comes with a dynamic heart full of love, then there's such a desire to give, isn't there? And such a potential for fulfillment because both sides are a flowing stream. Yes, this is a big subject bigger than we can cover here, but I hope this gives you some idea of how to begin. So, my friends, be happy in yourself. If, in a plea for happiness, you hold out a begging bowl to life, the bowl will remain always empty. God bless you, my friends. Our work is made possible by inspired listeners, so if you feel to support Asha, you can make a one-time donation, or for unique members-only content, subscribe through Patreon. Blessings and thank you.